0: Okay. <laughs>
1: Left. I am lamenting the paucity of tangible deliverables that have come from Joe Biden and his administration over the past 11 months now that we've been in this. We did an emergency episode on Sunday, not tethered to an episode of Bad Faith podcast, which we typically peg these debrief episodes to, because of all that was going on in the world. So we've covered. Much of the Build Back Better debacle and the um, uh, just truly one for the record books interview with Charlotte Maynard God and Vice President Kamala Harris. But I'm sure some of you missed that, still would like to ask questions about that. Of course, I'm going to prioritize and open the floor to talk about the latest episode of Bad Day Podcast featuring Slavoj Zizek, Slovenian philosopher who's back on the podcast for the second time. We interviewed him exactly one year ago, uh, on the 17th. One year ago, since we interviewed him this this time, and so I asked him to reflect on what he thought about the upcoming Biden administration, how he thought they would perform, and some of the criticism that I received in the light of uh, my interview with Noam Chomsky, where we went back and forth about the value of vote blue, no matter who, and whether there are other alternatives, whether there are more efficient ways to leverage your vote as a voter, other than bending the knee and stating a priori that you are always, no matter what, going to vote for the Democratic Party. Now, I would argue that, you know, Bad Day Podcast has been has vindicated it a great deal um, in the year following the whole Chomsky, force the vote um, controversy, but I'd like to hear from you and how you guys are thinking. Um, we also talked about several other subjects in the context of the Slavoy-Zizhak interview, including, uh, we touched on Julian Assange, uh, China policy, um, uh, vaccine mandates, and the like. Uh, but first, before I get into it, I do want to just shout out a piece, a recent piece from the Daily Poster uh, from, by my friend and colleague, David Sirota, called The Democrats Are Trying to Lose. And if I may do a little bit of a reading series, um, as people queue up in line, let me just give David Sirota's gloss of what's been going on in the last few weeks or months. He writes, Cognitive dissonance is one of the defining traits of American politics. But with this weekend's blow against the Build Back Better bill, we've now reached an inflection point. Americans are being simultaneously asked to believe that Democrats are mounting a valiant, last-ditch defense of democracy against insurrectionists and election deniers. And yet we're also watching Democrats proudly surrender the midterm elections to those same fascists, knowingly creating Weimar-esque conditions for an authoritarian takeover. Taken together, this is far more than hypocrisy. In JFK lingo, this is an admission that the ruling party wants the bear any burden brand of democracy defenders but without the pay any price actions that might assure the survival and success of liberty. In the last week, the contradictions have been too blatant to miss, even if corporate news outlets continue doing their best to ignore, omit, downplay, and distract from them. On the one hand, we see congressional Democrats casting themselves as the heroes of a West Wing episode, brightly screaming about all of the web of connections between the January 6th rioters right-wing news outlets, and top Trump officials who appear to have been entertaining plans for an actual coup. On the other hand, we see Democrats fully leaning into a likely 2020 disaster. They are going far beyond merely refusing to give Americans an affirmative reason to vote for them in sabotaging their own purported agenda they seem to be deliberately trying to lose to the very fascists they claim to oppose, going out of their way to insult and harm as many voters as possible before their likely collapse. This weekend's big news is the likely death of the Build Back Better bill, which includes most of the party's climate, health care, housing, and other social spending promises. But this plot twist is only the latest chapter in a larger story. Consider what's happened in the lead-up. And here's a quick bullet point list for those who have forgotten. Upon assuming office, one of President Joe Biden's first moves was to tell governors that his $15 minimum wage campaign promise was effectively a lie. And congressional Democrats then insulted everyone's intelligence by blaming their own fireable parliamentary advisor, an appointed bureaucrat with no real power, for the betrayal. While flirting with cuts to housing programs, Democrats had mismanaged meager rental assistance programs and allowed the eviction moratorium to end, a one-two punch that is now creating a mass eviction process reminiscent of the meltdown that caused Democrats' 2010 electoral massacre. Democrats spent months touting their plan for permanent tax breaks for wealthy mansion owners and affluent blue state locales while limiting a proposed child tax credit extension to just one year. Even as survey data suggests the tax credit is one of the only things that has made Trump voters like Democrats a bit more. Just 48 hours after new polling data showed swing state voters are most concerned about rampant political corruption, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made national headlines, brushing off the idea of anti-corruption legislation to stop her and other lawmakers from personally enriching themselves off inside information they receive as government officials. She rejected the concept even after a new report showed lawmakers and their staffers flagrantly violating existing ethics rules governing stock trades. And the Omicron surge, the Democrat White House scoffed at the idea of providing free COVID tests. Has refused to use its executive authority to share vaccine recipes and has completely discarded its promised public health insurance option, instead, offering its insurance donors more subsidies in exchange for inadequate insurance that bankrupts people. And finally, Biden is now heading into the election year, openly reneging on the student debt relief promise as he hemorrhages support from young people. It me, young people. <laughs> Instead, he is pledging to restart loan repayment, even as new research shows that this debt is contributing to the housing crisis. Meanwhile, the eviction machine is firing on all cylinders.
2: All right, so that's
1: just the start of an article that I suggest you all read if you're not already subscribing to the Daily Poster. They don't pay me to say this, but uh, it's a strong recommend. I truly don't know how I would make sense of many of the more technical aspects of what's going on in the Hill without people like David Sirota and David Dayan, and they are two of the most important journalists in the country as far as I'm concerned. I see we have a caller in queue, so I'm gonna take Erica. um, And everyone else should remember that. You can ask me about whatever you want. This is a safe space. I know we tackled a lot of this stuff over the weekend, so really feel free to chat about anything. It doesn't all have to be depressing, dispiriting stuff. I also just watched season two of Love Life, which was truly delightful, and I'm happy to talk about that or any other things that have been been positive in your life as well. So, first up, Erica,
0: unmute yourself when you're ready. The unmute bu- bu- button is in the bottom right hand corner of the screen, Erica, the little microphone. Erica, I can't hear you, so you're going to have to unmute yourself pressing the little microphone button on the bottom right. Okay, Erica,
1: I'm going to go ahead and take Tom. But get back in the queue when you figure out how to unmute
3: yourself. I'd love to hear from you. Tom, what's up? Hey,
0: what's up, Can you hear me? Can you
1: hear Hello? me? Oh, I know what's happening. It's going into my um <laughs> headphones. One second. Let me just... That is a technical problem on my end. I have my other headphones connected and my phone is confused. Okay, Tom, I should be able to hear you now.
4: Awesome. All right, so... I won't take a long time since you were talking about movies. I just wanted to give a, um, a recommendation. I'm a big 90s cinema fan. And since I'm leaving New York soon, I've been kind of like really nostalgic for, you know, New York kind of tri-state cinema and everything. If you get the chance, have you seen the movie? I have not. All right, it's a real good movie. It's like one of the few times Stallone does drama and he does it really well. It's, uh, it's like Harvey Keitel. <clears throat> Sylvester Stallone, Robert De Niro, uh
0: Michael, yeah, Michael Rapaport's Rappaport.
4: in it too, and it's interesting because it, you know, it's like a typical kind of western. Stallone's the, you know, reluctant hero, and you know, Robert De Niro's like this, you know, bitter, jaded New York DA and all this other stuff. But it's got a lot of themes that when I was young, I never really realized where a problem, like, um, they have this one scene where one of the cops, he's supposed to turn state evidence or whatever, and he's killed, but they show a picture of him on the newspaper, and they call him the chokehold cop. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's a fictional story, but, you know, like, it, it's, like, stuff that I never really paid attention to, and now my older age, and now that this stuff is more in the media, I'm almost a little embarrassed, and I'll give you one anecdote, and then I'll hang up. I won't take up any more of your time. Yeah, no worries. So, uh, maybe this is a little bit of a TMI. My father's actually an ex felon, and I spent many years as a child, you know, visiting him in prison, Green Haven, Rikers, Sing Sing. We did the whole tour, you know, Columbus mm-hmm. Circle in the morning on the bus upstate with my mom and mm-hmm. all that other disgusting, depressing stuff. And I remember when I was young, my father used to kind of like, uh, I mean, my father was kind of a dirtbag, but. He's a great father, but when he was younger, he was a crook and a bit of a dirtbag. But he would always complain about how the cops who had arrested him had like planted evidence on him, or they, you know there was some mm-hmm. kind of you know something not quite honest that had happened in the whole ordeal. And when I like honestly, frankly, I didn't believe him. I used to think, yeah, yeah, like of course you would say that. You know, you don't want your son to mm-hmm. you don't want your son to think you're a crook. And all these years later, I've kind of come around to, you know, with all this awareness around police corruption and and just the sheer amount of people who just get thrown in prison and then pulled out because, you know, cops were lying or dishonest or fudging, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so watch Copland 90s movie. It's got a lot of themes that are still current, highlights a lot of problems that are still going on today. You guys uh, will definitely enjoy it, I think.
1: Well, thank you for that, Tom. I have someone in my life who is aggressively always trying to watch action movies. And while I have a broad and diverse movie watching palette, we don't always agree on (laughs) which movies in that genre we should be watching. Um, So I'm going to definitely put that in the queue. And I will also say that, you know, someone who both dated public defenders a lot, has a lot of public defender friends. And whose own, you know, grandfather, biological grandfather, whose funeral I just attended last week in Cleveland, I don't I didn't know him very well. I only met him a couple of times in my life. And part of that was because he spent most of his not most of his life, but much of his youth uh, in and out of jail and was in jail for most of my mother's childhood. So certainly no, you know, certainly don't have any reservations about sharing the extent to which the criminal justice system has impacted so many lives in the most incarcerated country in the world. This is a safe space for those kind of disclosures. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Next up, Nick. What say you, Nick?
0: Sorry for the delay there. Uh, Hi. Uh,
5: So, um, especially with the whole uh, fallout with the student debt, obviously being a lie from the get-go, there was a Breaking Point segment this morning talking about how and, and I thought it was a bit of a, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, the whole uh, progressives talking about primarying Biden in 2024, and uh, Nina Turner mm-hmm. kind of being the one to start kind of speaking it into existence. But uh, the thing that I was thinking that whole video segment was just like, I donated maximum amount to Bernie in 2016 and in 2020, and the years in between donated a brand new Congress, Justice Democrats, like, and even if there was kind of a primary of Biden in 2024 within the democratic party i don't think i could go through that again uh so mm. i i guess i don't know i want to be encouraged by that news but like the thing that i would so much rather speak into existence is like let's get the 2024 or sorry let's get the 2020 bernie sanders movement but do it for the green party this time
1: yeah, I mean, I I didn't see that segment, but I'm very curious about it. I, I have been noticing the tone of Senator Turner's tweets have been, you know, we need more, um, you know, progressives in Congress, etc. But I had assumed I had interpreted those tweets along the lines of the generalized, you know, we need more squad members, kind of vein of things, not that it was framed as a Biden primary, which is interesting. Were there references to who the challenger might actually be? Was it suggested that it would be senator turner herself or other electors that are already in congress
5: my takeaway was it was pretty light in substance it was just kind of a clickbait thing which it worked like i clicked on it and i heard it out but uh <laughs> but yeah they just kind of made the point that uh, nina turner spoke it into potential existence and crystal was saying that she'd be excited for it but like i don't know i i needed more from that segment before i could kind of start to it's going to take a lot for me to participate in a democratic primary ever again
1: would you have a preference um when you're looking at third-party alternatives if someone were running on the green party ticket versus NPP versus forward party
5: um it would be green if only because you know say what you will about the other parties that are trying to uh uh, you know, make a name for themselves look to the Green Party's infinite credit, they've always had the balls to actually run against the Democrat, and mm. that's kind of uh, to me, that's the actual you know courage that's actually needed at this moment. And uh, you know, every day I just pray that a Jammu Baraka decides to go for it, but uh, we'll see. <laughs>
1: Well, I certainly voted for him in 2016 on the Jill Stein ticket. If you guys would feel the same way, but you don't know that you can psychologically financially support another progressive running on the democratic party ticket when rather than running a third party, give me a thumbs up and see, and let me know what the what the consensus is here on the room with the 50 of us here. So.
5: Yeah. Put in that resume for their press secretary, whoever it ends up being.
1: <laughs> now, would it matter to you, Nick, if the candidate were someone like Bernie, someone who, you know, is still trusted in a great deal running as a Democrat? And would it matter? Yeah, it's ahead. not even. Go oh, ahead. sorry.
5: Well, it's not even about the candidate so far, because I still had a degree of actual I I was naive right up until that, you know, day that Bernie Sanders conceded in 2020 that I thought on some level the Democratic Party would even allow it to even happen. But I I think I've been, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I I kind of turned a blind eye to too many things that I've now kind of concluded that the fix was in from the start for both campaigns, that I don't really trust any Mm -hmm. fairness within the actual internal party. I don't think they'll ever allow it to happen,
1: And what about the idea that someone could run as a Democrat and then just not pledge fealty to the idea that they were going to submit to the eventual nominee, right? Because that was the question that Bernie in particular got throughout. And there's a world where he says, you know, well, actually, no, I'm going to run third party or decides to do that at the end. You know, how would you feel about that? Mm -hmm.
5: That would be amazing. Uh, And here's the thing. I would love somebody running in a primary, just constantly shitting on the Democrats, even with no intention to run general it's only because they can't in some states if you run for a primary you're automatically excluded Mm -hmm. from any sort of ballot access in a general it's i i I know that that's a law in some states like enough that it would be a Mm -hmm. an overall detriment but the the point is if somebody were actually in the news cycle every day in that party even if you know ultimately it would be a world of difference if they said you know i'm running as a democrat in this primary and even though i can't run in the general i'm saying right now if they uh you know, screw me out of this process. I'm endorsing whoever the green candidate is, even if it can't be me, you know?
1: Yeah, I hear that, Nick. And I, I'm based on the thumbs up. A lot of people in the chat agree with you. So thank you for that. and Thank you always for calling in and tuning in. It's always good to hear from you.
5: That's very kind of you. Thank you. I, uh, th- yeah, I should probably give it a rest, but this is too
6: much fun. So No,
1: okay. it's great. I'm I'm having a blast too. All right. Next caller is Andy. Welcome back, Andy. How are you doing today?
6: I'm doing fine, Bree. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. What's on your mind?
6: So, well, I don't know if I have any right to be as cynical as I am, but I really don't think that anyone, you know, in in Bernie's orbit uh, has any prayer of, like, getting out, of even posing a credible threat to—I'm probably assuming it's going to be Kamala Harris going to be the, the Democratic nominee in 2024— so, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd be excited for their prospect.
1: Andy, Andy, don't you think that, like, an animated shoe poses a credible threat to Kamala Harris in 2024
6: at this point? <laughs> you know... I,
1: I was with you until you said Kamala Harris, at which point all okay. bets are off.
6: Listen, listen, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no Kay Hiver by any <laughs> means, but it's just, like, I, and I also have, like, so little faith in, like, mainstream voters at large that, you know, especially with how 2020 went, I really doubt that anyone's going to, I don't know, a lot could happen between now and then, but I just don't see it happening right now. Um,
1: well, let me tell you, I, I'm, I'm back in New York right now. I took the train home today, uh, and that is why I don't have my soundboard and all my special effects and was just playing Whitney Houston from my laptop speaker, so apologies for the quality decline. But I, <laughs> you know, I tweeted about this, and people are accusing me of lying, but in my lift on the way to Union Station, I ended up chit-chatting with the, the driver who was telling me I was his last passenger and explaining to me that he really loves communication and how he was selling knives door to door and how that helped him learn to talk to people. And I said, oh, I'm in comms too. What did you learn from selling these Cutco knives? So we were having a good little chat and completely unprompted by me. I didn't say anything about who I ever worked for, or what my politics were. He started talking about how politicians were all corrupt liars how Biden made a bunch of representations that he didn't follow through on. This is a guy who's from the area, but whose family now moved to, to West Virginia after he graduated from high school. And who feels very strongly that Democrats aren't worth the effort, except for that he kind of liked Bernie. And I said, well, fancy that. I actually used to work for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and you know, we didn't have much time to talk because I didn't have to sprint to my train because um, I was running late. But this this is the sentiment in the world, and when I brought up Kamala Harris, he was very nonplussed as well. And the 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 disgruntledness is real, the frustration is real, and the the desire for an outsider candidate, I think, is really real. Now, is someone like this driver a voter? I don't know. My my gut tells me that as much as he had some fully formed political opinions, it has led him to a apathy as opposed to being someone who would ever vote against. Biden or vote constructively for an alternative candidate or a third party candidate, which is a little bit of the problem, right? How do we channel apathy into political action? And that's part of why I think third parties are so important, because it is going to be difficult to get people who have already decided that Democrats aren't going to take us anywhere to invest even in someone like Bernie, who isn't actually a Democrat, but who is was running on a Democratic Party ticket.
6: Yeah, I think that's the that's the that's the real million dollar question there, you know it's i as i you know uh again i'd be excited for any pro- for any you know potential bernie successors it's just also the way the media you know seems to shape these narratives i don't know how much you know how successful we would be able to like you know counteract that narrative um but i want what i wanted to talk about is you, you know yesterday's episode with slavoj Zizek. uh something mm-hmm. that i'm afraid that he might be right about if I'm understanding him correctly is this idea that perhaps the material conditions aren't, you know, bad enough towards, you know, like how bad does it have to get before things start, you know, being better, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. The maybe I'm an accelerationist take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, t- tell me why I have you here, Andy, how was the sound quality when I was playing the music in the beginning? Is it worth me playing a clip from that episode right now over the speakers again? Okay. Let me pull sure. up this. Um... Clip that we're talking about where he asks whether we need further catastrophes to awaken us. Don't you also think
0: that these students, they are
2: uh, so intelligent from the standpoint of capitalist reproduction mm-hmm. because then they prevent your politicization? Your problem right. then is how to repay debt. That's why right. capitalists always like. To free but in debt. Not a slave. free but in debt. Sometimes I think
1: we don't realize that another level of discourse and aggression is necessary until it's too late.
0: I'm so sad today to say this because it goes
3: against everything that I believe But Maybe we need further catastrophes. Awaken
1: us. Well, well, this is the thing. I'm confused. I'm confused because on some level you say that you're not an accelerationist, that you're not willing to go that far. Okay, but now you're saying that on some level you think it needs to get a lot worse before it gets better. All right. So, those of you who listen to the full episode know that, you know, I think that my, my impression of him is that he, like a lot of folks, is reluctant to be seen as unserious, is reluctant to be seen as, you know, a fire starter who isn't accepted in Holland Halls anymore. I mean I, don't mean, I don't mean that uncharitably. I mean, I think we're all under that pressure, not to mention the actual censorship that will come if you say certain things on these platforms and all that. So, And nobody wants to be accused of being a quote unquote accelerationist because the implication is that you don't have compassion or understanding of or sensitivity to the fact that so many people are going to be hurt and potentially killed from by that acceleration and that so many of us in these positions to be having these conversations are less at risk from the consequences of accelerationism so we don't want to be doing kind of a hashtag privilege take here but despite saying that he didn't want to be seen as an accelerationist i think it's clear to <laughs> lots of folks um that it seems things haven't been quite bad enough to, for Change to really pop off. And there was a question in the conversation during the episode about whether or not student the student loan debt cliff might be a tipping point of sorts, in part because so many relatively, relatively bourgeois uh, middle class people are affected by it even though the social safety net is so thin that they still feel very much uh, vulnerable and precarious. And that combination of precarity and also having just a little bit of independence, a little financial independence, a little bit of social capital and clout means that in the, the huge numbers of student debtors at 44 million means that that's a really powerful coalition that can start to tip the balance. I don't know. What do you think, Andy? What do you, Yeah, go ahead.
6: So you know, from my point of view, it's just again like i i don't know it's a, it's a scary kind of prospect to consider um and and I don't want him to be right mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to be right either because, you know no one wants to say no one really wants things to get worse you know even if even if there's a possibility of things getting better at the end for my you know on my own, and you know my mom you know my parents and I, we were talking about is like at this point we just start mm-hmm. you know. Uh, telling people to go vote Republican, and I'm and I'm just thinking like, well, you know, if we want immigration reform so bad, we wouldn't support the party that is diametrically opposed to it, you know. But it seems like the party Mm -hmm. we trusted for so long to actually deliver on that very clearly isn't interested in and actually delivering. So it's just you know, what the hell?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's exactly that that makes me that drives me to want to support any third party effort, whether it's a forward party, MPP, I don't care. Like, But people want a landing ground. People want to do something more than just stay home because they want to be able to telegraph their disappointment with the Democratic Party. And voting Republican is one way to do that. That seems tangible. And I understand why people are feeling that way. You know, part of the, even though I obviously don't agree with it, and part of the conversation that I had with this guy in the car was, you know, um, that Sorry, I just completely lost my train of thought. Um, what were we just saying?
6: Uh, you were talking about how um, he was uh, disaffected. Oh,
1: oh, oh, yeah, I asked him, you know, do, is your life better now? He was like, yeah, I mean, we have to vote for Biden because of Trump. And, like, they were telling us that, all you know, all the things that Trump was going to do bad. And I asked him, you know, is your life better? I mean, I, I said, I'm not trying to push you one way or the other, but I'm asking you, is your life personally, the way you live it, demonstrably different? under Biden versus Trump and he was like no absolutely not and I think a lot of people even though we all know there are many people whose lives are demonstrably different right and there are real effects and the Supreme Court is a thing and Joe Biden has appointed a bunch of federal judges and that's important right I would never want to minimize the reality of all of that I'm talking about the political reality for voters and what's going through their head and as much as we can sit here and scream about RGB and all of that for the average voters sitting around trying to make ends meet by driving Lyft they're not thinking about that they're thinking short term week to week, and there's a lot of resentment, and people want to punish the people who lie to them
6: right, and you know, I actually talked to Spencer about this yesterday, mm. but you know, the most demoralizing thing about this whole situation is just like at at best it looks like you know Biden's is you know clumsily um, staving off the countries creep into fascism, but at worst, it seems like his incompetence is actually further accelerating us into it, and it's uh-huh. a scary thing to think about.
1: It is, and that's part of why I appreciated the framing in um, David Sarota's piece, contrasting the kind of hype over 1-6 and the hand-wringing about the threat of fascism, which, you know, isn't insincere with the complete unwillingness to do anything material that might actually worded off but thank you Andy I appreciate your contributions as always right all right Dan you are the next caller Unmute meet yourself when you're ready
0: all right can you hear me
1: I can what's on your mind Dan
0: hi Brianna
7: um cool to talk to you um I um oh I I wanted to say <clears throat> that um just a little constructive feedback I guess I I just I love it when you bring up Star Trek and like these, you know, you know, utopian visions and stuff like that. It came up in the Žižek conversation and stuff, but um uh, the way you you bring mm-hmm. it up often, I think it's uh I think it's really easy to get caught up in sort of the day-to-day what's happening like politically now, like what's the issue everyone's talking about, but I think it's such a cool thing to be able to take that longer view sometimes like to really have those conversations or Mm. thoughts about like, what is, what is the future we really want? What do we want to build towards like long-term? Right. And, and what does that mean? And um, so just wanted to say, I I appreciate that. And I've um, uh, I'm sorry, I've got a lot of disjointed um, other thoughts, but Um, No,
1: don't worry about that, Daniel. While you collect your thoughts, I'll just respond by saying the reason why I I sincerely really do think that part of my political attitude and belief that things can be different is because of my ability to visualize it through the lens of Star Trek. And I am often struck by the fact that so many of the classical liberals that we hear from and that I speak to on the show harken back to kind of early America and the really uh, caught up in the romanticized notion that people were leaving Europe and had a you know land they could start from scratch LLL, hashtag native American genocide, but they could start you know from a new plan an, an ideal society, a city on the hill, and they really um, asp- you know, they really value the uh, the kind of forethought and the planning and the aspirations and the idealized nature of um, the American experiment. But the idea that we can plan a society and aspire to a more perfect union today is completely anathema to those very people who are still stuck in the 17th century um, or the 18th century. And it's really, to me, it's like, okay, like I, yeah. get, I get you. It is a beautiful romantic idea that you can design a society to improve upon all of the failures of the ones you just left. But like, also do it again, Like yeah. that work is not done.
0: Uh-huh.
7: Yeah, it's almost kind of ridiculous when you put it in those terms, right? Like, they're willing to have this utopian vision, but it's one from 300 years ago. They're not willing right. to update exactly. it, right? Exactly. Uh, and and I think uh, some stuff that's really encouraged me to kind of think more in these terms over the last year is probably the the two books I read this year that were most, like, affecting on me and, and influential were um uh, The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, which is uh, you know, mm. a, it's like the realest feeling utopia I've ever like read or seen. It's it's really cool. Mm. Um, and then um, David Graeber. Um, if you're f- familiar with him as well, they're both anarchists. Interestingly enough,
1: yeah, I'm 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 reading uh. hashtag audiobooks. Uh, debt.
7: <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's what I read. It. It's it's fantastic. And I'm
1: I, I'm early on cuz you know, you know how I am about reading and I keep having to stop to read <laughs> for the podcast and upcoming guests. Um, you know, I just to speed yeah, read Jack's book, I just have to read, you know, Batia's book, but I'm going to get back on the case.
7: Yeah, it's and it's it's a long book too. Um, yeah. but but I think what 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 both of these two that I brought up, it, it's like they are looking at, at the realm of, of human possibility. And uh, Graeber is is often like looking for examples in the past or or even the present, right? He's an anthropologist. He's looking at how human societies organize themselves throughout time and and, and now, right? That are outside of like, you know, the current like state structures and, and stuff like that. And, and Le Guin is like thinking about you know, how, how a society could work in the future, imagining this more utopian society and also sort of alongside of a different dystopias too to pair it with mm. and stuff. And yeah, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but um,
1: I- No, well, I, look, I appreciate those suggestions. I've got one in the queue and I've got the dispossessed pulled up. I was about to buy it and then realized I shouldn't buy it on Amazon. So I'm going to write it down on my phone. <laughs> and I'm probably going to be in a bookstore over the next couple of days doing some Christmas shopping, so um I might pick it up as a gift for myself. Thank you for the recommendation. I've been meaning to read some Ursula again, yeah. especially given that she's just passed.
7: Yeah, it, I think I think I think you'd like it. And and, and this kind of makes me think of one thing too that I think you know might be well, actually, like, an episode about, like, thinking utopian, which might be kind of a cool thing. Actually, do um, you know, Seriously Wrong podcast? They did an episode of that with, like, Light of Gold, actually.
1: Oh, I was, I was thinking of her uh, 100%. I, you know, obviously a yeah. friend from Current Affairs, so.
7: Yeah, and she's, uh, I, I figured you'd know her, yeah, but, um, like, she's, she's a big fan of The Dispossessed and stuff, too. I, I gathered from that podcast and stuff, but that'd be, that I think would be a cool podcast. Uh, you know, I think it'd also be really interesting to hear you um, kind of talk with like anarchists and stuff. Like, what's the, you know, you know, where like on the socialist to anarchist continuum or are we like thinking about things? Because I feel like I'm drifting more in that direction. I've I've called myself a socialist for years now, but I'm increasingly finding the the concepts of like. You know, direct action rather than protest, and like losing my faith in electoralism. Yes. Connecting with a lot of mm. your earlier callers, and and all that sort of stuff. I'm finding this like a lot more attractive.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I you know, me, I'm not a theory gal, um, but I definitely found myself talking to a friend of mine who works for plug your ears, delicate ones, uh, the Biden administration, and you know, he was talking about <laughs> his frustrations and. You know a lot of the institutional failures that exist in government, and I we were going back and forth about how, you know, I you know I'm a I'm a leftist, but I'm like a liberal. I don't have a I don't have a the way that conservatives have a kind of constitutional preference for small government. I don't have an ideological preference for big government. I think that the government needs to do the things it needs to do. If you if you could yeah. prove to me that four people in a room could do it, I'd be like great. <laughs> but you know, and I was thinking about all the um, inefficiencies that he was describing um, and how the, some of a lot of the criticisms of government are real. And I definitely said in the course of that conversation, like, well, damn, maybe I'm just an anarchist, you know, like, so I I'm completely open to it and I'd love to have yeah. you on. Um, and if you have any and it's recommendations,
7: I, I feel like I hear you sort of bring up sometimes, right? Like the pipelines, right? Like let, let's do that. Like government's not doing anything. We can't really foresee them doing anything to, stop these pipelines or like do any reasonable climate action like let's let's just let's do things right that's like that's the idea of of direct action right like let's let's bring things into yeah. matter you know mutual aid right all all these sorts of things
1: well again hit me up in the messages i this, there's a lot of um things you can do in this app that I think most of us haven't realized or haven't really started to exploit yet. I want to shout out to Spencer and the others for Hear using the crop tool and clipping bits of these episodes so I can promote them on social media. But also there's like a whole, you know, comment discourse ability under each episode um, that we should talk to each other. in. so dr- please drop any recommendations for guests, whether they're anarchist guests or guests other than Lida to talk about utopias and dystopias and all of these fun things. But um Thank you for all of those recs, Dan. I really appreciate it.
0: You're
8: welcome.
7: Thanks for chatting.
1: All right, Clifford, you're up next. What's on your mind?
8: Hey, Bree. Uh, so I I really appreciate you having me or allowing me to talk again. I um I I I won't try to beat the dead horse that I brought up the last two times, which is just like um what our last caller was just talking about. Like, what a great group of people. Like, every time I call or listen in. And and I really enjoyed the I thought I've never heard such a good uh, interviewer like handle Slavoy. Like actually my the first episode of your show that I ever listened to was, I guess, a year ago now. Um, and it was the Slavoy episode. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found your show. So this was really, really cool. And I and I just find like he I love how he thinks about things. And I think he's very funny a lot of the time but he does, I do find he like jumps around a lot and, uh, and that's uh, something I struggle mm. with. And I think you did a really great job of like, kind of trying to get like a con something resembling a concrete answer. So I really appreciate that. But, um, well, thank you this week. I was, I was just going to ask about, um, because you were at the beginning, you were like, things have definitely gotten more serious at at the beginning. It seemed like it could be maybe a, a more uh, casual thing. And I'm always talking about depressing stuff, but I was, uh, my my wife wanted me to ask about um, because she's also a big fan of yours. Like about um, one time you had an episode, or maybe it wasn't even an episode. It was like a late night discussion, and you were talking about um, children and just like what it would mean to have kids. And my wife and I are almost thirty, mm. and uh, and we were we're just we're still trying to decide if if that's a good move and obviously like i bet i basically thought after cop 26 just in the amount of timeline would need to do something radical to change the course of you know our climate trajectory i assumed that it would be like basically a six-month window of like just crazy response to cop 26 in order for anything to just because it, the timeline's so small now in order to like like i don't know if you heard about that big block of ice in antarctica but yeah of course mm-hmm. you did but yeah so so just in that realm i'm thinking like oh gosh the li- my life expectancy will be so much shorter than my parents probably and if i had kids theirs would be even shorter than mine and i didn't know if you ever um if it, i'm sure probably that has crossed your mind and and what your thought oh boy yeah, but we don't have yes. to talk about that. No,
1: no, no. I look, it's it's fine. I don't know that this is a less bleak conversation than the conversation about America. At no, large. <laughs>
8: this is even more bleak. So it got to this. I'm like, I think maybe I could ask her about the heavy question. Yeah, no, but it's fine. Right. Look,
1: the episode that you're alluding to is one of my favorites. I really, you know, I I really enjoy having those. You know, you don't often get an interlocutor who's going to be super honest with you. It's part of why I really enjoyed the. Thomas Shatterson Williams episode, because I do enjoy exploring these somewhat more vulnerable subjects, and maybe I'm a bit of an overshare, so apologies. But I've been actually talking about this a lot recently with a paramour, shall we say, um, who very much wants to have children, and I am very much ambivalent about it. Um, He's a little older than me, Uh, he's 40. And I asked him, as I often do to men who I'm dating, whether or not He's really thought through what it means to be a parent because I think it's rare, relatively rare in human history, that there's so many of us who have gotten to this age. And, you know, we have, you know, birth control and, you know, ability to control our environment. And it really is a choice to have kids. And it's also true that we have been able to live single and enjoy our lives and be in a certain income bracket where. There's a lot of tangible things to lose. And so, when men are very enthusiastic about having kids, I always want them to be sure that they know what they're talking about. Do you know about episiotomies? Do you know about women peeing a little pants a little bit every time they sneeze? Do you know about, like, are you really prepared not to sleep for years on end? Are you prepared to touch poop every day for the next five years of your life? Like, if the answer was yes, great, let's do it, but I don't want to go into this blind or have to share, shoulder all of that burden because of, you know, the second shift and all of that. And it's funny because he went and talked to a bunch of his friends with kids when I raised these questions because he genuinely wanted to get their feedback. And one of the people he spoke to basically came back to him and was like, sometimes I have regrets because of the state of the world. Your point, you know, late stage capitalism, ice, ice, um, polarized caps melting, sea level rise, climate catastrophe, all of this. And what's funny is that that is never my that is not what holds me up. And I don't know if that's because I have some like North American privilege bubble where I think that it's going to get really bad. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a few more generations before the worst impacts of it are going to affect the global north. Frankly, you know, that's not a value judgment. That's just an empirical assessment. And so the things that really hold me up are more the kind of quality of life you know, what is this going to mean about my ability to continue to do the work that I do that I've come to really love? You know, I feel very differently about the idea of giving up professional opportunities now that I really love what I do for a living and really believe in it, and it is my baby, than when I was a lawyer, when I was fantasizing constantly about having kids and having a family because it seemed like the only way to get value out of my life because I got absolutely no value out of my professional life. But it's interesting to me, you, you are, to me, young. And I don't know, man, it's a a kind of crappy thing to say that, you know, the worst impacts aren't going to affect you. So go ahead and do it, especially since having kids. Obviously, there are some climate climate consequences, although, you know, I don't think that individuals should be taking that on. I think obviously it's all these corporations that are doing the worst of it. I'd say if that's your biggest concern, go ahead and do it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, cause your child could also be the child that figures out how to invent the machine that sucks carbon out of the atmosphere or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I just, I don't think that we can reduce all of the things that people get from family and community and society and the intrinsic value of hum, hum, human beings. I don't know that I want, want people to gamble away what has been such an intrinsic, essential part of the human experience because of the threat of climate change, which still at the end of the day, it's coming, but it has a longer tail on it than you know a sixty, seventy, eighty year old human life. If you're like me and you just are concerned that you're not going to be able to binge watch Netflix all day, well then that's a really serious concern, and I think maybe you should keep it wrapped up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
8: yeah i I promise it. This is much more about the about the climate change thing. I would like just the other things that I think about are just like. As the, like, there's going to be a correlation between climate and, um, more global and, and more, you know, and like you were saying, like almost. I'm sorry, you
1: cut out a little bit for me. Climate and what? Oh, sorry.
8: Sorry. A correlation between climate and global pandemics to come mm. through. Okay. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. like that's going to be, you know, like just, I just imagine what, like, how, you know, my childhood was compared to someone growing up now with, you know what they're living through the and yeah and i think you hit it on the head with late stage capitalism and just the uh instability and like what the earlier callers were talking about i was thinking like it's probably i just feel like because it's kind of felt universally other than the one percent that electoralism is kind of like this dead end and i think that eventually we'll either have like a fascist kind of like, like you were saying something resembling one six or something resembling one six. That's, you know, more on the communal and probably crossing the political spectrum a little bit, but more geared towards the economic stuff. I feel like that's coming. There's like turmoil and all that stuff, even in the, as you say, the global North and like, and they could be wearing, like if COVID is a mildly, you know, lethal thing. I think like our inability to react to that is kind of telling of what, you know, possibly could happen. But I appreciate all your insight and and I I really that means quite a bit for you to take time to uh share your thoughts on that. So that means a lot.
1: No, I appreciate you sharing yours because I think a lot of us are thinking about these things every day. I mean you know there's I mean no one wants to be hurt. There are a lot of risks associated with having kids and a lot of things that can happen even with the best laid plans, right? And so, you know, my, one of the things my mother once told me, um, and she specialized in early childhood development and loves kids and was a special needs educator for a part, part of her life, you know? And something that she told me is like, you know, kids come all kinds of ways and you need to be prepared to love whatever comes down the pike. And like, you shouldn't have kids if you're not prepared to love a kid who is not like you or is difficult or who has special needs and all of these things, who who could have childhood disease, terminal illness, a congenital, you know, there are all kinds of things that can happen on top, you know, before you get to what's going on in the environment, you know what I mean? And you could be sitting around worried that your kid is gonna, you know, be sick from air quality and live a declined declined quality of life and they have, they're just born with terrible, you know, cystic fibrosis and can't breathe for that reason, you know? And so, you know, sometimes it's like why are we and I and I mentioned this? I mentioned this anecdote in the episode I did with my friend Joe from Swoody Podcast, that like, you know, he stole this story, for, stole and made a short story out of this anecdote from my life where we were, you know, sitting around, I uh, visiting an elderly res- relative and like my parents started crying when we left their house, anticipating their death. You know, this might be the last time we saw them, and then you know, my dad ended up dying like. Years before either of them, and it's like there's just some that that same kind of philosophy that you shouldn't count people's years, and you can't be living your life for the worst case scenario. If it's something you really want to do, my feeling would be to do it because you really don't know what's going to happen. Your kid might invent the solution and solve everything. You might be making little soldiers for the revolution, whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, thank you for calling in, Clifford. I I appreciate that kind of meditative little segue we did
8: I, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts thank you
1: take care of yourself all right Jordan you are up next what's on your mind
9: okay um can you hear me okay I can awesome well uh as I say long-time listener first-time caller um <laughs> I'm thrilled to be welcome thank you I'm really happy to be talking to you I think you're doing fantastic work at um representing a point of view that's i think unafraid uh to piss off enforcers of various narratives and discourses which is great and uh the you know the general atmosphere seems to be everyone is so afraid of violating their team's shibboleths and or they just want to be seen as a trustworthy ally and there's this culture of dishonesty and spin. That's um, hmm. justified by political combat. You know, everything can be rationalized by political combat. Uh, but it's entirely backward if, you're, uh, if your ethos is truth-seeking and problem-solving. And I'm hmm. very glad you seem to think that as well, because I, I get a sense that that's your ethos. So. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I have a little bit of a preamble. And then I'll ask the question um, at the end. I'll be as brief as I can be. So um, I've been listening to the past few episodes and with this uh, special interest in the talk about frustrations with electoral politics, about um, the lack of labor organizing, the lack of there being a popular will for direct action. And I have to say, uh, you know, as for Klein and the political scientists that he's interviewed on his podcast over the last year has convinced me, anyway, that the outcomes of our political system it, uh, are overdetermined. So the cogs in the machine may have different names and so forth, but the outcomes are baked into the incentive structures and yada, yada. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, even people with uncommon heroism and conviction and who don't care about being socially or professionally ostracized, like uh, Mr. Bernie Sanders, for example, um, mm-hmm. you know, they are not there. There's not enough of them to form enough of a critical mass to exert leverage on the rest of the machine. So that I think is a fundamental problem. I think you know, basically, you know, everyone has been complaining about that fact for the past several years. So this the this theme of what you're talking about: about caucusing, and vote withholding, and that's right. It all boils down to collective action. Right. And what's the main impediment to collective action? It's the coordination. problem. People who've studied economics and social psychology, which was my first passion in school. That's what I thought I was going to do. I was going to be an academic, and then I went to Wall Street and that didn't work out. And now I'm in tech. That's kind of working out. But anyway. You know, we can recognize the typical cases of this, like the fishery where. Uh, fishermen have an individual incentive to catch as much fish as they can but the collective incentive is to manage the uh, overall population of fish but because those incentives are misaligned the fishery gets drained and then everybody Mm -hmm. is out of a job right so misalignment of individual and collective or misalignment of short and long-term interest these are at the root of so many human problems but i think we can solve this. We have means and mechanisms. We're at the cusp of proving this out in major ways, I think, over the next several years. I get really excited about it because I, I kind of think of it like it's splitting the atom where you can empower ordinary people to coordinate at critical masses almost on demand. That creates an enormous amount of instability, but it also could create, finally, a realistic potential to find out what we as a polity are really made of. And maybe we don't have what it takes. Maybe we've just been so drained by the kind of destitution of virtue, civic virtue in our society over the past generation or two that we just don't have it. But maybe we do and maybe maybe certain uh you know maybe a rekindling of hope can can uh inspire um, that's typical of doing people that may that was maybe dwindling or extinguished, and I think what was, C.S. Lewis said something like courage is is the essence of any virtue because you don't know if you have a virtue until it's put to the test. So that's uh-huh. what that's what uh, I really care about these days, and yeah. I'm working on a project with some people. You can think of it like Kickstarter, but for collective action or direct action campaigns seems simple, right? You know, why don't we have this? It's a, it's a very simple proven out concept. Um, there's issues of risk. There's issues of inertia. There's issues of expectation management. You know, people generally won't want to commit to something unless they're a true believer, unless they have certain guarantees or unless they can spread the risk around. It's all the same problems with union organizing. That people face. And of course, there's risk of retaliation, punishment, and, mm-hmm. you know, being hung out to dry, and so forth. So I would just suggest to you and to the listenership here check out the um, concept called assurance contract.
1: What was that? that I'm sorry. You know, I don't know if other people have you cutting out a little bit, but um, the, is the concept called what now?
9: Assurance contract. Assurance so, contract. ASS, mm-hmm. Yeah, assurance contract. Um, It's it's a kind of um, it was initially developed as a sort of a financial instrument, but you can see it play out on GoFundMe or Kickstarter or Indiegogo or uh, change.org. You know, it's it's that general principle of I'm not going to do this thing unless a whole bunch of other people do it. And there's this tipping point uh, or critical Mm -hmm. mass. And only then do uh, our obligations activate. And then we have to follow through. And then there have to be some
1: enforcement mechanisms. So, Well, let me ask you this, because we've been talking about this in the context of the student debt um, relief and mm-hmm. uh, the possibility of a strike, which doesn't seem to have been organized in any meaningful way. And, you know, months ago when I did that interview on the podcast with Asher Taylor of the Debt Collective, I, I put out a tweet sudden time thereafter, basically trying to get a sense using a Twitter poll, how many people would have to be participating in a strike for at least the Twitter audience to want to participate as well. And I just tried to Google and find it. And I'm not sure what the results were, but not that many people, you know, engaged with it. But it does seem to me that you Mm -hmm. are right, that as someone, I mentioned this on a previous episode of the debrief, but as someone who's sitting here with, you know, good credit and who has the ability to pay off, you know, to keep up with their student loan payments, especially now that they've been on pause all this time and I've been able to save money and not have to pay interest, you know, would I be willing to go down with the ship and ruin my credit in order to make this broader political point? And obviously when the stakes are higher for you because you do have something to lose like I do, it becomes... I understand why people would want there to be more broader buy-in to make sure that it's really effective. And this also goes to Slavoj's point about, you know, do, do things have to get worse? Mm. Is there something of an accelerationist bend to what we're saying? Because I think that what accelerationism does is bring down the perceived individual risk so that it doesn't matter as much how many people are in it with you. You basically have nothing to lose or you, you perceive there to be very little to lose in the grand scheme of things. So I think a right. project like that is really interesting. Um, and would love to to know more about it, and to know if there are any applications for the student debt strike because it could actually it could go a long way in lieu of actual organizing if you were able to get a certain number of people, however many it would need to be, to commit to kind of mutual financial mm-hmm. support or at very least to all go down in the ship together. With the idea being, you know, Biden they they can't screw all 44 million of us with respect to our credit histories or whatever punitive actions are taken against folks who refuse to pay
9: yeah and and you still need competent organization like so for that particular application you need to kind of reverse engineer the outcome right so taking into account all of those components that prevent people from doing that maybe it's just unpopular but if it's not if there is a hypothetical critical mass of debtors out there who would under certain conditions agree to participate in a death strike. But what are those conditions? You know, you have to kind mm-hmm. of pass what that criteria would be. And then if you get a sense of what it could be and be like, okay, well, under those conditions, can we get 10,000? Can we get 100,000 people to sign up and make certain guarantees as part of this campaign to say, if we hit this number, then by virtue of being such a large mass of people, we have the leverage to negotiate firms that are favorable to the participant, right? And if you can reverse engineer that outcome from the get-go, uh, then you just have a simple proposal to make to people, and then it's more of a kind of an outreach problem or a messaging problem, just a, a marketing problem. And, and yeah. you figure out whether or not there's really a constituency for something. Yeah, and,
1: and with student debt relief, there is already just, and this is, I mean, this is why we're pushing for it. There's already just such a big cohort that isn't going to pay regardless because they can't. And so there's mm-hmm. a real, I think there's a real organizing opportunity there because you are already have some millions of people who, if you could connect them with the project, would be, you know, on your list of folks who you could say are committed to it. In the first instance, again, because the threshold is low and they're not going to lose and they're not going to pay anyway. And to help build confidence among everybody else who wants to make sure there's a broader buy in before they put themselves in the line. So thank you for that. And can you say again where people can find more information about this?
9: Yeah, absolutely. So the beginnings of this project, um, it's called Spartacus and you can find it at Spartacus.app. So just, you know, you know, the uh, Rebellious slave from from Rome, Spartacus. Dot AP. Mm. And um, it's like we're doing beta tests very soon. We're trying to get proofs, you know, proofs of concept out there. Mostly having to do with labor organizing because that's a very obvious use case. But the application of principle is scalable from small campaigns at a you know a medium sized workplace. Uh, all the way up to, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, yeah, people are like, well, change.org gets hundreds of thousands of signatures and that doesn't do anything. That's a very good question. I'm not going to take up any more of your time, but it's, um, it, it's definitely, there are a lot more details that any interested parties could, could uh, discover. I'd be happy to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you for that, Jordan. Feel free to also in the comment section of the episode when it's published drop some links for people who might be interested. But th- thank you again. We've, we're, we've got an hour and I was really hoping to make this not a two or three hour marathon like we usually do. Um, but I see lots of people in line. So I'm going to say Jahan is the last caller and I'm going to try to move through the next few a little bit more quickly. Um, so if we could... I know I'm as guilty of running my mouth and going long as any of you are and asking questions. So I'm going to try to apply um, some brevity as well. Up next is a doctor. Hello, doctor. What's the prognosis?
3: Good evening. Uh, I'm not that type of doctor. (laughs) Um, Doctor of computer science. But anyway, um, so the topic I'd like to discuss is um, the climate crisis. Um... It seems that our elected officials have made a series of missteps, whether intentional or or not as debatable. But nevertheless, I see there's a misstep that has led us to where we are right now, particularly that there's zero chance, effectively zero chance that any sensitive um, policy solutions will be um, enacted. Uh, within the Biden administration. And I'm wondering,
0: are we, um, are political commentators doing uh,
3: their followers um, an injustice to continue to um, uh, push for electoral politics to um, address climate change? and
1: as opposed to as
3: opposed to more uh direct um possibly violent actions um, like via protests or whatever you know uh instead of f- focusing on um, um like you know putting it putting the burden on our elected officials you know like uh self described progressives in um, congress to um to take certain steps to get climate uh, policies in place, we should political commentators should focus on, um, you know, galvanizing their followers to, you know, you know, protest the White House or do whatever necessary, um, put, putting uh, bodies out in the streets to, you know, try to. Cause a ruckus, um, to threaten the, uh, uh, the uh, I don't want to say fabric, I want say fabric of society in order to get some of these politicians to bend for the people's will. I, I don't, you know, what we've seen thus far in the last, especially in the last year, does not give me any hope at all that climate crisis will come out of, uh, addressing climate crisis will come out of uh, Congress directly as opposed to uh, forcing them, uh, forcing them.
1: Yeah. So those things are mutually exclusive, right? There's a world where ASC can be in Congress wanting Biden to pass Build Back Better or to pass the version of Build Back Better that actually had more robust climate reforms reforms before Joe Manchin requested that they all be taken out. You know, there's a version where she's doing that and where she's also calling for protesters to be at the White House and to stand at Standing Rock like she did back in 2016 and why a lot of us fell in love with her. Um, And that the fact that she's generating social pressure at the same time that she's in Congress is a real powerful tool for her and makes within the halls of Congress more effective. I think that was the model that Kyle Kalinske and the Justice Democrats had. Designed when they recruited these candidates. Moreover, I would argue that part of why they are not as effective on the inside is because there is a whole, and I'm no expert here, um, but there's a whole realm of policy, um, solutions that are just not even on the table because there's a presumption that our, you know, plutocracy is not going to get on board, which is an accurate presumption. But you could see your position, uh, as an AOC as a political figurehead as chain as moving the um, Overton window to a place where we are frankly having a conversation about, well, do we need to nationalize businesses? Do we need to be talking about, okay, well this isn't a completely un-American phenomenon. Nobody batted an eye when they um, uh, bought, What was it? GM in the recession and then just quietly returned it to the private sphere instead of having a conversation about, you know, why do we buy out? Why do we bail out airlines for more than the airlines are worth and then not actually just own them? You know, what would happen if we took some of these high polluting industries under the government's wing and did what they you know, what was in the public interest as opposed to um, the shareholders bottom line? And even if you think that's completely implausible and you'd be laughed out of the room. I would imagine that if you're having that kind of a conversation, then some of these piecemeal reforms that are coming through Build Back Better start to look a lot better <laughs> to someone like Joe Manchin or Fracken Looper or any of these people, right? So I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive, but I absolutely agree that nothing they do and say in the halls of Congress are gonna, is going to go anywhere without the external pressure. And already, I mean, we'll see what happens, but already it seems like um, the White House is bending a little on student debt. You know, I don't know if you saw this um, news coming down the transom today about the fact that they're they are now considering extending the student debt moratorium deadline past February first uh, because the White House is getting so much flack, and I think it's it's really unavoidable how much everyday normal people, not just leftists on the internet, are furious and terrified about the the student debt payments um, turning back on, especially since it's just hitting all of these inboxes. This is not an abstraction. It's like. Everybody's Gmail alert is saying, "Hi, it's Navi and hey, it's Great Lakes, and you're gonna have to turn this shit on." It is, it is, it is visceral, right? Um, so that's all to say that I I think the public, you know, you know, tweeting works, posting works. as Somebody joked today, you know, like on some level, direct action, extra uh, activity outside of the hill is really powerful. So I'm 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 with you there, but I don't think it comes necessarily at the exclusion of People advocating for different policy prescriptions within Congress, what do you think? Do you think I'm being uh, too sanguine about the, about electoralism and its benefits
0: I think
3: that I don't particularly like to waste my time, mm-hmm. and um I don't see that from you know we're I haven't read. You, you guys um, brought up uh, David. Uh, um, Gravers. Oh, this read up. wrote um an article. I have not read that yet, but I can pretty much gather what he he said based on what you you know you described. And you know, given all the pressures right now, what um, what Biden is saying that they potentially may uh, extend the uh, moratorium on the on student payments to February. All of that pressure amounted to a one-month extension, right? Well,
1: I mean, we'll see. But that's, I mean, I, so what is, what, is, what is the, I mean, to me, you can look at that as a glass half empty or glass full. If they're certainly doing it to try to deflate the pressure, the building pressure around this issue. The fact that they've done anything at all suggests that the pressure has built to a certain point and had an effect that is inspiring. Now the goal is to keep up the pressure and not allow it to have the deflationary effect that they hope extending in a month would have right? I
3: mean, aspiring sparing enough to actually, I, for my, for my, from listening to you, you have way of, not, okay. <laughs> I'm going to be judgmental. You have a lot, I used to be um, uh, more optimistic about things, but I, I, I um, realized in order to get through this, uh, um, the realities of this world that that I had to treat everything um, very cynically. I I wouldn't have gotten to where I am if I was as optimistic as you are. Um, I don't
1: think I'm optimistic, but by virtue of your own argument, you're saying that we shouldn't care about electoral, we shouldn't focus as much on electoralism, we should focus on these outside pressures. But this is evidence that this is not electoral. There is no bill, despite Jen pretending that that's a thing, there is no bill that is, be moved through Congress about student debt cancellation. This is t- fully people's will and mm. outside pressure causing the administration to flirt yes, with the yeah. idea of extending, if not doing more, on the issue of student debt. So, aren't you arguing against your own point that it doesn't—it's ha- not going to be about legislation. It's going to be about direct action and its results.
3: True. Yeah. Yeah. I don't too <laughs> no, much, no, I want fine. to take. no, you're fine. Too much of your time because.
1: Because I, I, I wanted to
0: say that you need to go wrong.
1: No, but that's all I'm I say. I do agree with you. Most of what they can do.
0: on you cut off.
1: Hello? You can't hear me? Okay.
3: I, I think it's, I now. agree
1: with you. I think it's both true that there is a disproportionate focus on kind of legislative action and electoral politics. But it, it's also true that, you know, we, people bring up the inside-outside game in a way that I think is intended to sometimes provide cover for insiders not doing everything they should do on the inside. But I also do think it is possible for insiders to actually use their perch a lot more efficiently. And I don't want sometimes the correct assessment of the outside games not being used enough to let insiders off the hook from yeah. one cooperating with outsiders in having the symbiosis of the people and the power that actually made AOC powerful to begin with and notable to begin with. And also that they should be saying and doing things that push the over to window. Like if you're wearing the dresses, this is what we talked about in the podcast, right? If you're wearing the tax rich -rich dress to the Met Gala and everybody at the Met Gala thinks it's cute, then you're probably not doing the radical enough thing. And so I just think there's a lot more room for the AOCs and federal. I don't mean to focus just on her, but, all of these Congress people to do more. And I also think there's a lot more room for people like Pramila Jayapal, who we haven't talked about at all today, but but I think it's pretty clear has been the sticky wicket um, involved in a lot of these moments where left energy is drained. Uh, I think a lot more criticism needs to be coming for her and other others who are, who get the benefit of the protection of the progressive label but who I think all evidence suggests are working just as hard, if not harder, to defend the energy of the moment.
3: Yeah. Right, last point before I go. Uh, I, yeah, I do agree with you in that regard. Um, I wish they would um, leverage, or I think like their official would leverage us um, um, as outsiders uh, more. But you know, given what I've seen, I, I don't see them to actually uh, utilizing that uh, that latent power. Um, that's why going back to what my original point is, you know, hopefully maybe some of our, our prominent, um, um, political commentators would just try to come together, hash out the differences, um, and, uh, galvanize, uh, hopefully, um, some of us who are more willing to protest to, you know, bring all the records uh, to the White House or to our,
1: uh, yeah, to the White House. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. You know, I was standing out with Assange last January. I was standing out with the Force of Vote rally last January. And other political commentators chose to retweet those crowd sizes and laugh and mock the efforts of people trying to advocate for justice that, you know, for issues they ostensibly support. But if any of those people uh, like Owen Higgins and Sam Cedar, want to stop laughing and mocking p- folks who were trying to organize to better our country and join us, I would happily lay down all resentments and join hands and help fight for Medicare for all or student debt cancellation or medical debt cancellation or housing as a human right, or um, freeing Julian Assange or whatever else that most of the, I think, Core left has been fighting for throughout, and I, I join you in hoping that people who are part of what some people describe as the boutique left realize that there is not much to be gained by um, flagellating themselves to the idea of um, you know the, the being patted on the head by by the most progressive members of Congress. But thank you, Doctor. I appreciate all of that. i um, Sylvester. Welcome back. Shall we live? We are live.
10: We're live. Uh, did you eat
0: today?
1: Oof. Not, not. you know, I <laughs> I went a long stretch because I took the train and I did not want to take my mask off for even one second the whole time I was on the train. So I got home at around seven o'clock and inhaled an ungodly amount of food and leftover candy and stuff from our Thanksgiving guests. So I'm feeling I'm lying on my back with a distended stomach, and a Star Trek sweatshirt on. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 almost, it's almost Christmas. Yeah, get, like, what are we doing well, with Thanksgiving stuff still now? <laughs> well, my mom doesn't buy junk food, so the only food in the house is stuff like the Thanksgiving guests brought, you know, gift, ba- gift, gift baskets that had like cookies and candy and stuff in them. So I drained what was left of those baskets, and am now very peacefully in my warm bedroom taking your call. So what's on your mind, Sylvester?
10: Okay, yeah. Make sure you you know nourish yourself. You know, make you know make some time for that. We we gotta eat. we need that sustenance. Um, I was gonna keep it light today, actually. All right. I was gonna keep it light. I was gonna keep it light. Um, we don't need to talk about Tent City today. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was wondering because you said that you went on a date this past weekend, right?
1: I'd be dating.
10: You okay? <laughs> so I was wondering what what is your barometer I don't know if it was the first date or not but what is your your barometer for a a good date.
1: You know, I'm a humanist. I like people. So it's difficult for me. I wouldn't say these you know dates that are not dates I want to follow up on are bad dates per se. Um, Mm. but you know, I'm long enough in the tooth to know what's for me or not. So, (laughs) you know, I sometimes feel like I am a professional interviewer and that's what I'm doing on the date. And I often discover that the person I'm on the date with found that the date was very enjoyable because I think sometimes not to judge your whole sex species,
0: (laughs) but (laughs) men
1: aren't necessarily, you know, society doesn't make men into kind of social creatures, the the lead conversationalists, et cetera. And so they're very happy to be on a date with a woman who makes it very easy to talk to. But just because, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I enjoy being on a date where I don't feel like I have to be driving the ship. And so on the rare occasion where someone is very dynamic and asking interesting questions, and it does feel like a back and forth and not like an interview, it means a lot to me. It's nice not to be fighting with people about, I don't know, Medicare for all. (laughs) That's always a plus. It's nice to be in a comfortable environment. You know, I'll go on multiple dates with you as long as you keep picking plays that are like nice ambiance. I don't have to shout over music. I get to sink down into a comfy chair. Your girl loves a hotel bar. (laughs) Where I can get a well-made cocktail, <laughs> sit and talk to you for hours you
0: know,
1: if I'm perched up at some, you know, sports bar on a hard stool, and there's a cold draft every time the door opens, you know. I might still like you and enjoy the date, but if I'm on the fence and date two is going to be the same, I might be disinclined to follow up. <laughs> but I, really, I'm easy. I'm easy to please. In fact, probably too much so, and that's why I'm in the predicament that I am now.
10: <laughs> so so did this weekend meet the the threshold for another one? Or is this, you know, there was a cold draft this weekend? <laughs>
1: A little of A, a little at B. I need to stop talking about this so much because I'm revealing the extent to which I'm still dating, and I don't want one of the people to hear about the other people. <laughs> but I will say, oh, I've you been,
10: know what? Do they listen to you? Uh,
1: my main squeeze does. <laughs>
10: sometimes. Oh, yes. Okay, I ain't
1: gonna get you. Yeah, caught up. no. You know, we just
10: hypothetical. we everything's
1: alleged. <laughs> alleged. You know? Yeah, my main, my main squeeze is great, and it's probably just gonna be a main, main, main squeeze soon. Um, but I did oh, go hello. on one last, I did go on one last hurrah date this weekend with a perfectly nice, oh, one last. <laughs> perfectly nice gentleman um, who I just don't think is quite my speed, but he was very nice. But I did not care to argue about Medicare for all. And I think we're just in different places politically and life wise. And that's fine.
10: Uh, well, yeah. It's all good. Don't even worry. Just go ahead and put your jersey up in the Raptors. <laughs> it's not like you got the main, main squeeze. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, just do the Kobe Mamba out and then go ahead. <laughs> but, You know, that's all I had. We keep on going down the queue. But I, I'm, 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 I'm happy to hear that, you know, it, it looks like you're headed somewhere where you're going to be a little bit more settled.
1: Yeah, we'll see. Or maybe I'm just going to be a confirmed bachelor. That's always an option.
10: The world is yours, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Something like that. Something like that. Thank you, Sylvester. (laughs) It's always nice to hear from you. All right, love. All right. Take care of yourself. Tucker, you're up at bat. What's on your mind? Just Hey, I just wanted
11: to uh, pick up off of the last one where you were talking about You didn't want anybody to know, like, who you were dating around, like, them to hear that you were also dating around. If you're not going steady with anybody, you can date around as much as you want. Like, unless somebody takes you to a soda pop shop and asks you to go study, date as much as you want.
1: Don't you think that despite the fact that I've been open, this is a poor guy, I hope none of these people are listening. But don't you think that despite the fact that I have been open with my main squeeze about the fact that we are not in an exclusive relationship as of yet? that there is a certain romance lost by hearing the details of what the person has been up to in this just as a leo i'm a very proud person and even though he was technically well within his rights to be dating other people if i found out about it or heard any kind of details about it or who these people were i would it would cause me to lose interest a little bit and you know it would it would it would rankle me somewhat and i'm not saying it's right or just or fair but i do think there's something to preserving the romance of the
0: thing. No? I get that. But at the same time,
11: like if you're just like dating around, like unless you're, if you actually feel like strongly about them dating around with other people, maybe you just need to take the shot and ask them to be your significant other.
1: Right. Well, we're doing that dance and I'm going to resolve that at, at, <laughs> at my own pace <laughs> privately, but
11: oh, the, the point of the no, that's just is, a, in general. Right,
1: right. The point of the matter is that I'm not, there yet. And I still feel, think out of respect for that person and the bond that we are developing that it's better not to be talking about all these other dates. I've been and Not all these. It's not a lot. It's just occasional. But the other people that I've been liaising with. But I also think that I, I, you know, I'm someone who likes to mind my personal experiences um, to reason about the world. And I think that interpersonal stuff is really fascinating. It's part of why I've been really into this show Love Life especially season two, which I just finished. It's so, so good. It's so well-written. It's so true to life. It's just, it's amazing. And I love reality TV shows for the same reason, all the dating shows married at first sight, because I think we learn a lot about ourselves by watching versions of ourselves play out in these kind of exaggerated circumstances. So I am I'm genuinely torn between wanting to be open and transparent and disclose stuff and talk it through and also wanting to be protective of people who are not so into that. I also like was dating someone over the summer who I referenced on a podcast and he was so upset with me that he never spoke to me again. (laughs) So like, you know, I just want to be, I just want to try to be a little bit sensitive here, Tucker.
11: And I get that. But if you want to get off that real quick, I did want to bring up something about the recent uh, uh, Kamala Harris and Charlemagne, the God Mm -hmm. interview. A lot of people who I've seen cover it, I don't believe watched the entire interview. They mm-hmm. just saw that in, end clip because they act like Simone Sanders, like cut in just to in, in the interview real quick because of that. Mm-hmm. That question was asked when previously, probably a minute or two before that they said, or she said they're going to have to end it soon. So I just think that it's kind of wrong to throw like shade on Kamala or uh simone sanders for that ending the interview on that term kind of if you catch my girl
1: yeah i mean i i definitely watched the whole thing it was only 20 minutes so it's you know 10 minutes at two times speed
0: Which is sad if nobody watched at all
1: right and i and i included the link to the full thing under the clip i
0: Oh, yeah, that that's actually where I watched it from. Okay.
1: So my, my recollection was, you're right, that early in the interview, there was like a flag, like, we're going to have to wrap this up. But that even at that point, it seemed to be in part because the line of questioning was difficult for Kamala. The, the line of questioning throughout, none of it was good for Kamala. Right. And it's not it's not. Absolutely. In Kamala's defense, and, you know, in good faith, it's not Kamala's fault per se, except for that Kamala chose to work for Joe Biden, so then everything's her fault, right? But she was being asked reasonably good questions by Charlemagne the God, to which she has no answer because the Biden administration is just doing a shitty job, you know, like, there's no answer. So she's, she's exactly. basically been asked to exactly. for 20 minutes. And so obviously, as it gets more and more t- intense, So as time goes by, the desire to kind of like... Uh, Use the cane or whatever, the vaudeville cane, and y- yank her off stage becomes high, higher and higher and higher. So I think you're right. It wasn't that Simone Sanders was, you know, trying to stop the interview just because of the colloquy about student lo- uh, who's, who's the real president, Joe Biden or Joe Manchin. But I do think, even though she at first tried earlier in the, in the interview, it was because of those same kinds of pressures that Kamala was being asked questions she didn't want to answer. And to the extent that she let it go longer, it seemed to be because Charlemagne backed off. And then he came back again with more questions. And frankly, the initial question that got Simone to jump in wasn't, I think, a difficult one for her to answer. Like, I think she could have handled it. And Charlemagne was asking it because he was rooting for Kamala and wanted her to assert herself and claim her authority, not because he wanted to undermine Kamala. But then when Simone did the whole, sorry, I can't hear you, I'm in a tunnel thing, and acted like, you know, they were going to have to end the broadcast. Then Charlemagne felt personally offended and disrespected as a host. And at that point, he kind of ratcheted up the energy of the questions. So that's not to say that I, I think you're right in it specifically. But I think in terms of the vibes, like in terms of the essence of what happened there, I think people are right to criticize Simone Sanders for trying to end the interview because the co- co- questions were uncomfortable. I think that that is a true. That's truly just what happened. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I I get that.
11: But at this, like, I'm just picturing it from Kamala's stance. And like, I have to be upfront, like, I really do not like her. I think she's just a shell of a politician. She'll take on any, like, position. But I think in that position, she was listening to both people at the same time, and she didn't know exactly what to do. And I think that's why, like, she stayed. But I, I just don't know, like,
1: Yes, but that's part of the problem, it's, isn't it? That she's just such a bad politician. Like, first of all, uh, what, exactly, yeah, yes. on the Katie Show, everybody should go and listen to me, Ka- me, Katie, Leslie Lee, and David Dayan did a breakdown the other night um, on the Katie Hopper Show on YouTube. But part of my issue, and this is a partial defense of Kamala, or a partial defense, rather, of Simone Sanders, is that it's felt like Simone Sanders would only intervene if you really had that little confidence in the principal, Right. Like, I can't imagine a a Mm -hmm. universe where I would ever interrupt a Bernie Sanders interview under any circumstances. Like, I I mean, I would just, (laughs) it just would not occur to me because I can't imagine a world where I could handle something better than Bernie could handle it, right? Like, that I had an answer that Bernie wasn't equipped to bring up. Now, there's some niche areas maybe, like, I would want to save him from that She the People race stuff, (laughs) But um, in general, like, I would have enough confidence in my principal to know that the optics of me interjecting would be worse than them just getting through the answer. Like, literally throwing my body. Like, she literally stepped in between the camera and Kamala Harris on a live Comedy Central interview. Like, that's 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 pretty extreme behavior, right? And so I understand that Kamala was, like, listening to two people and unsure what to do. But that that kind of situation doesn't emerge unless there's already a pretty significant breakdown with your team, with your candidate, with your principal, with the comms staff. And from all the reporting that we've gotten about both Kamala as a candidate, Kamala as a, a boss, the comms staff, Simone Sanders planning to leave already uh, at the end of the year, it suggests to me that that was just a, a microcosm of the broader problems going on. And yes, like I have empathy for. Kamala being a tough situation, but it feels like a tough situation of her own doing, because she's just not a very good politician.
0: Yeah, I, I understand what you, you're getting at right there. But uh, just one quick thing before
11: uh, I get off, I did want to bring up how a lot of people are talking about like direct action and what we can do outside of electoralism. Mm-hmm. I did also just want to bring up ballot measures. It's in the majority of states. Mm-hmm. Like, we can push like the democratic party from the outside okay joe biden if y'all ain't gonna do four weeks of uh, maternity leave we're going to push ballot measures across the country six months paternity leave like Mm. and like up in maine like i called a while back about uh their universal health care system that they're pushing through the ballot measure uh process and they've got over forty thousand signatures as of like december 9th so Mm. they're a lot closer they've needed like 25,000 signatures left so like if you know anybody or anybody lives in Maine that's listening it's Maine healthcare action i believe that's the uh organization but i really believe that progressives need to like the democratic party is not going to listen to pro- to progressives it's clear so like we need to focus our efforts on stuff that we can actually do, which in my opinion is right now ballot measures is the only like process that we can actually get stuff done. Yeah. If people want to do like stuff outside of like electoralism and direct action.
1: Well, I appreciate that Tucker. I do remember when you called in and talked about that before, and I meant to follow up. Can you put a link in the, I'm going to experiment with if we all, when we bring up things here, put them in a link in the comment section of this episode when we're done recording and when I post it, I think you have to wait till I post it to do that. But so that we can all follow up and amplify everything that's been brought up here. Cause I, I you raise a very important point And I want to make sure it doesn't just go into the dustbin of Colin.
11: Oh yeah, absolutely. No problem. Because like, I really think that like on the small level, like state action is the best way forward because like the biggest socialist like, boom in america like happened on the local level like up in uh north dakota back in like the uh early 1900s back with the nonpartisan league
2: mm-hmm. and they
11: passed like the first like state-owned bank and state-owned mill and uh elevator like i really think that we just need to stop working within like the democratic party and just need to get outside of it and actually push policies that people want Instead of, like, trying to fight these billionaires, pretty much.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. And thank you for keeping us grounded in that way. I appreciate you, Tucker.
0: Thank you. You Have a great day.
1: All right, Brian, you're up. What's on your mind?
12: Hey, Brie. I'm glad that... Your date is going well because I thought I was gonna have to fight you over Daniel Day and I didn't want to do that because we get along really well.
1: So. <laughs> LOL. Isn't Daniel Day a little bit problematic in real life, despite uh, all of the respect for his cheekbones. I wanna, I wanna put that out there. Isn't he a little bit? But didn't he get involved? I don't want to lie about Daniel decan but didn't didn't he get into some troubles out there filming that show in Hawaii?
12: Um. Okay, well, I'm exposing myself, because he's hot, and I don't care. Fair
0: enough, Ryan. Fair enough. (laughs) But
12: um, I I want to piggyback off of um, what the previous caller was saying about the Kamala interview. And I actually Mm -hmm. think that there's a silver lining in the interview. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I don't know if the average person knows this, but Charlamagne, like, soft. Endorsed Kamala Mm -hmm. as early as 2019. So Mm -hmm. the fact that, like, she slash um, her team treated him with such disrespect, Mm -hmm. I think it's a real opportunity to continue to expose. um, Because regardless of if we primary in 24 or like support somebody third party in the general election, like, we got to keep continuing to show people (laughs) how awful she is because Mm -hmm. uh, the difference between. Um, that I've noticed like uh, most people in the democratic party and most people in the Republican party is the democratic party uh, folks tend to trust who the DNC picks Mm. and or who the DNC champions. And I think that that is like one difference um, between quote unquote our side and Mm. the Republican side, um, Mm. which is why it's been so hard to, Uh, take over the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And part of why I would agree with what the Tucker that said that people should listen to the whole thing is because when you listen to the whole thing, you realize this is not an interview. This is not a gotcha interview. This is not the interview with a guy who has the vendetta out to ruin or expose Kamala Harris. This is a Kamala fan interviewing Kamala. And you can see him getting kind of triggered and disrespected in real time. I think because you're right. They do have a relationship he is a supporter and he got shut down for asking what ultimately, you know, was a pretty mild question. You know, it's a it's a rhetorical question. Who's president, Joe Biden or Joe Manchin? And into her neoliberal audience and the Comedy Central viewers, all she had to say was, you know, of course, Joe Biden is president. Unfortunately, we have three chambers of government and we got to get the Senate on board. We're doing everything that we can. And with your support and your donation dollars, we can, getting more Democrats elected so Joe Biden can fight for the American people. Like we hate that kind of answer, right? Like everyone on this call <laughs> thinks that's the b- BS answer, but that's all she had to say to Charlemagne to get him off her back. And she didn't say that. Instead, she you know took it personally and got a little heckles raised instead of start wagging her finger and whatnot. So I, I think you're right. Getting someone like Charlemagne mad works. It, it starts to make him think of the world differently. And the reason why I think you're doubly right Is because all of this focus that he's been doing on student debt recently came from an interview he did with Miguel Cardona, the secretary of education, last weekend. I don't know if you guys are following that, where Cardona was in the um, breakfast breakfast club studios and it was like a friendly interview. And Charlemagne brought up the Howard University students protesting sleeping in tents outside the dorms because the dorms were so low quality, which was a national news story that got picked up everywhere, foxing in all the places. And they were out there on, like, sleeping outside the dorms for weeks and weeks and weeks as it got colder, right? And when Charlemagne asked um, Miguel Cardona about it, he had never even heard of it. And Charlemagne was fluxed. He was like, this is happening in your backyard in Washington, D.C. you've never heard of this. And you're out here crowing about HBCU funding, which got cut from Build Back Better, by the way. But Joe Biden's been talking about Black students and HBCUs and how he needs you and Kamala's out here launching her campaign from Howard University and talking about AKAs and all of this stuff. And you didn't even know, the Secretary of Education didn't even know that there was a student boycott in your own city. And then at that point, Charlamagne, the same thing happened then that happened in this interview. He kind of pivots and you can see him get angry and he starts to ask harder questions. And so he immediately asked a follow-up question about student debt cancellation. And after that, he just has been hype on social media about student debt cancellation. You know, so these things, you know, do I wish that Charlemagne the God would ask more obviously real questions from the get go and not even be trying to move people and stuff like that? Of course. But I think you're right and astute to be able to perceive that this is how his psychology is working. And this, it has these useful downstream effects in terms of the liberal audiences that they're speaking to.
12: Yeah. And you point this out really well. I don't, I try not to call people like shit libs, even though I really want to, because um, I do think that like the people like Charlemagne, I don't know, with like left liberals of color... It, like the landscape can just get weird sometimes and like i'm not black so i'm gonna try to stay respectful but like angela <laughs> Yee endorsed eric adams for mayor yet mm-hmm. like she supposedly cares so much about like racial justice and police brutality mm-hmm. like things just get weird sometimes and like it's the about liberal. relationships it's yeah. just about
1: relationships that's it it's the whole thing
12: yeah, so um, I do try to flip, um, like, left-liberal people because I was in an Asian um, affinity group meeting back in, like, April or May, and it was a bunch of progressive Asians, like, you know, talking shit about Andrew Yang. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Like, I don't love Andrew Yang either, mm-hmm. but nobody's saying anything about Eric Adams, and he's kind mm-hmm. of in first place right now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just, mm-hmm. I, I I do feel like sometimes, like... uh. The left needs to get a little bit more laser focused mm-hmm. on like who who the targets are and yeah. how to how to actually like make the moves. But I I, yeah. I
1: agree, and you know I'm guilty of that. You know we did a lot of New York covers before we finally realized like oh crap, like we need to be focusing on why Eric Adams is bad more and not just the latest you know Yang viral situation and you know lessons learned. I think. I don't know. I also, and people get mad at me for this. I see opportunities for ally shit with people like Charlamagne the God. And I'm frustrated by a left that, you know, is understands the benefits of of someone like Joe Rogan being positive about Bernie Sanders, right? But doesn't see the benefits of someone like oh, Charlamagne the God. totally. Also potentially coming I just board. looked
12: at the Breakfast Club on YouTube. They have 5 million YouTube subscribers, yeah. which is close to... I don't, it might not be as much as Rogan, but it's way more than like Bernie's channel has, yeah. even like TYT or whatever. So yeah. I definitely think that like we can, if we, if we do it the right way, we can flip people like Charlemagne, Angela yep. E, Issa Rae, yep. um, my Asian friends that were trying to take down Andrew Yang. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like, I, I definitely you. think
12: it's possible.
1: So. People think I'm crazy, but like. I didn't make the world this way, but American, you know, liberals decided that black people were gonna have like all this culture reach and decided that black people were gonna be the conscious of America and decided that they were gonna ask Cognizzi Coates and Van Van Newkirk and Jamel Jamel Bowie and Jelani Cobb to be the the, the deciders about what the right opinions were gonna be about, about everything, which is on one hand, a little annoying, but also great because there's a small concentrated group of highly influential folks that happen to be black that I'm more than happy to go and chat with and try to flip. And I wish during the campaign that like, I had been deployed and used in those resources had been deployed more in those ways, because I do think that sometimes it can be extremely beneficial to flip a few key players and Libs have always understood that. They understood that with Clyburn, they've understood that throughout um and Eric Adams obviously understood that with Charlemagne the God and unfortunately a lot of people do just want that handshake and to be called on their birthday god bless you Bernie but some people just want to be called on their birthday (laughs) it's a shitty world that we live in but you can lament that later (laughs) right now you just need to pick up the phone and give them a call on their birthday
12: yeah. In conclusion, because I I want to keep it moving, um, I did watch Love Life season two, and mm. I liked it as well. Mm. We can talk about it in depth another time, but I just <laughs> want to say, I think you said that the main guy is hot, and I think that you are underselling yourself, and you can definitely date he's somebody so who's cute. weird He's okay. <laughs> I
0: mean, like, I
1: think he is like okay. I'm just saying he's he's like he's my type. The way his neat little figure and the way that he dresses, like that little nerdy preppy thing with the glasses and all of that, I I will admit to that being my thing.
12: Okay, so was like community Donald Glover your type too?
1: Yes, but Donald Glover always gave me, sorry, I don't mean to trigger anybody, doesn't date black girl vibes. And I kind of felt the same about the actor in Love Life, but because in Love Life, they kind of take that stereotype head on and address it in the show, it made me think of him, the actor, in a completely different light. Yeah. yeah,
12: yeah, that makes sense. But I don't know. I think I think you could. I think you could snatch Daniel take him from me. So oh, oh, it would oh. be a, a losing fight. <laughs>
0: oh, oh, oh.
1: You and Marianne Williamson seem to think that I can date anybody in the world, but that has not been my my lived experience. So when you get a roster of the these these tens, I'm supposed to be dating, feel free to um, play Yenta for us. All right. I got
0: you. Happy Happy holidays, holidays,
1: Brian. (laughs) Take care. All right. Jahan, how are you doing? I said you were going to be the last caller and I see Omar and Amir are trying to like get in here. I'm going to see how I feel after I talk to you, but what's on your mind?
13: Oh, for sure, Embry. You can add me to the list of people who believes that you can date anybody, just straight up. <laughs> okay. Like if I wasn't serious. married and everything else, I'd be trying to crack. But yeah, I'm, I'm going way too far now.
1: You guys are hilarious. Also, like, mm. where are my girls in this chat? This is this this yeah. is another. I keep saying this. You guys were all supposed to bring three female friends. To the to the conversation, I see you down. there. I mean, I'm not trying to guess people's identification based on their pictures, but I'm going to a little bit. Nicole, I see you down there. Dream, I see you down there. I see Britney Spears' face down there. Holly, like, come on, ladies, like, I want you to get in the mix in this conversation. Bianca, you know, like, I I love. I would I like enjoy that too. Energy. All right, but go ahead, Jahan. I
13: tried to, I tried to get my sister to, to to come on. She does listen to the pod, but yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. So, okay. Bree, I've been feeling that there is a fire growing under your hide um, regarding what <laughs> we're actually going to do about the total capture and failure of our government at large. And, you know, just that and the fact, <laughs> just that, and the fact that nobody is coming to save us. I've heard you say that <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and you've got the pod and we've got call in, But I'm wondering specifically what kind of space do you think would be conducive to actually Formulating a specific, effective, granular strategy for the kinds of collective action that have been discussed, like today. I heard some really great ideas and some stuff that I'm, you know, d- definitely interested in further exploring. But like for real, Bree, like what we doing out here? Like when you figure <sighs> it out, call me Brandy because I want to be down and like <laughs> let's do
0: it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, for a year I've had people basically shrieking at me that I'm not an organizer and how dare I, right? Like that's been the tone. But after, you know, all of this time where people are, I've had all these organizers on the show and, you know, with all due respect, truly, I don't, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult things are and how difficult it is. And, you know, they're trying at least in a way that I have not yet tried. You know, there's not a lot of solutions coming out of there either. And so... I am at a point where I, you know, like I, I do resent mm-hmm. the idea that I should have to, you know, learn how to be an organizer from scratch in order for anything to get done. I mean, that sounds so like narcissistic, and I don't think that's actually the case. I don't think I'm going to sit here and like <laughs> solve the world on Colin or whatever, or even outside of Colin. But it, I have been thinking a lot about well, what my responsibilities are. You know, I snapped at a guy on here the other day who told me I should have been organizing the student debt strike, and I snapped. You know, I oh, wheel i remember that he was right but like it's also like super irritating like somebody go tell the student the decollective that like why am i supposed to reinvent the wheel but okay fine well I- brie what
13: you are organizing are people's thoughts let's just keep it real like in in a really really amazing
1: way um yeah well but- I, let me be a thought queen t-h-o-t <laughs> you know like let me <laughs> let me organize the thought um you know do I? i didn't know that i was gonna have to like like to me it's like I'm doing cons, like can I do cons? like isn't that a useful project? Do I have to be like an all inclusive shop? But like it's fine, like if we have to look i look i'm I'm coming around to the idea that it needs you know I need to expand my capacities and uh, i what I do want to do is have Astra back on and talk logistically about what the barriers to actually organizing something earlier than now is. I know that they are doing a an event. I think at the White House in January, I think at the end of January, which I will definitely be attending and be very supportive mm-hmm. of. But, you know, it's time to have the organizers have, I think, a little bit more of a granular conversation about organizing and to tell them before they come on the show, I think, mm-hmm. oh, look, I'm going to ask you very specifically how and what. And I don't want any of this problem about, well, we just got to organize. Like, we just, you know, we just, you got to, you got to <laughs> knock on your neighbor's door and you got to, you got to, like, no. Like, which doors do you have a list? If people show up at this time in these cities, like, how many doors do you need? How many signatures do you need? How much money do you need to raise? Like, if someone even just came on the show and told me, Brianna, we're struggling because we need to hire volunteers. We have an eye to knock 10,000 doors, and we need to pay them each, you know, know, $10 an hour, and this is how much money we need for this many volunteers. We need to help raise money. We need, you know, $20,000. I would say, great. And I would get on the show and say, Here's the link. We need to raise $20,000 to get this ballot measure passed or whatever it is. And that would be something concrete, but people aren't even willing. Like that, Mm -hmm. those are not the conversations. You've been listening. Those are not the conversations people have been having. Those are not the asks people have been making. They get on here with our, you know, modest but significant audience. And people rarely make any kind of asks other than like click on this link or read my article or follow my show, you know? So I, I'm with you and trust that I'm mm-hmm, thinking about it. Mm-hmm. No, Sal, I see you just hopped in line. I was contemplating talking to Amar and Amir, but Sal, I just don't mm-hmm. think it's going to happen for you. I just want to be honest. <laughs> I just want to be honest. Okay.
13: Honesty is good, Brie. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, oh, Brie, yeah. did you actually ever get the email that I sent by any chance? I did don't send know it if to you bad did or, or
1: to me, which one did I tell you? Okay, so I will confess that I checked Bad Faith's email very sporadically. Uh, so I'm sure that I did get it, but I haven't checked it in a while. But I will check it while I'm home over the holidays, uh, since I have a little bit of break, since I don't have to make a Christmas episode, because we did a two-hour interview with Slavoy, and we'll be releasing half of it for free. Still,
13: still picking my way through that one. That is... It's, I know. It's,
1: I know. I know. But it might help good, if though. people want to... um you know, watch, if it's easier to watch, you know, and under to understand, cause mm-hmm. I know, you know, accents can be a little tough and <laughs> it is what it is. But like, if you wanna watch and that helps you, you know, people should know if they haven't subscribed yet that you can, Patreon subscriptions, s- subscribers get full video of all of the interviews as mm-hmm. well. And we've released two lengthy chunks of it mm-hmm. for non-subscribers on YouTube as well. We just put a second cl- chunk up today. In which he has a very colorful analogy mm-hmm. about vaccine mandates, and if he were to be beating me as his wife. So there's.
13: <laughs> oh dear! Yeah, I saw I saw your slick back on the,
1: on the video. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, I do I do my best. Um, but thank you, John. Let me see if I can get through Omar and Amir, and Sal. Sal is really like, Sal free. is an optimist because he's going to hang out here hoping that I get to him, even though, even though. You know, I kind of, I kind of appreciate his. Breathing. No, you saw. No. we'll see what happens. If he can get in under 10, before ten p.m., I'll contemplate it. But I'm cutting this off at ten p.m. All right. All right. Thank you, Jahan. Take, take care of yourself.
13: You too, Breathing. Okay.
1: Omar, what's lacking? Just unmute yourself. Yeah. All there right. you
14: go. Got it. Um, yeah. Uh, this is my second time calling, and. Um... I wanted to kind of get into, uh, I mean, I think I did this last time. I kind of contrasted Mexico with um, the U.S. When I was growing up, I kind of bought into um, sort of the uh, American uh, myth of it being, you know, a force for good, um, being a democracy, and as I, kind of went through college and just my own immigrant experience, I started kind of seeing the cracks. And um, I started thinking that, you know, when people kind of point to other countries like Mexico, like being so corrupt, so like flagrantly corrupt uh, versus the US, like I started realizing that there's just two different flavors of corruption. Between the two countries, Mexico, like there's no illusion that that it's corrupt that there's a, an oligarchy um, and the u s just has like a, a more polished corruption it it makes into laws um, mm. unethical practices uh, and so it look it has the veneer of a democracy of of things being um, you know above board. And, like, I just started realizing that as I um, kind of went through my um, college education, and it just got me, like, really angry because I felt like I had been duped. Um, And so, like, I think that some of these sentiments have been uh, recently echoed by people like uh, Chris Hedges, Max Blumenthal, who have said that Americans are... Like one of the most propagandized people on earth, like there's just like even liberal friends of mine have a like there's like this belief in the system that that's just lingering there that that's like part of their of their philosophy they' they they've bought into the system like no matter how many critiques they have, there's still mm-hmm. like this fundamental belief that this is a democracy and to me it's it's a democracy if it is a democracy it's on life support because we don't we have very little transparency about what the government is doing you have you know mass surveillance of people you have uh suppression of of journalists like assange um mm-hmm. like they, who revealed war crimes so that's part of a democracy is knowing what your government is doing so that you can make informed Decisions as a citizen, and you have suppression of votes i mean it's just you know i have very i have a very cynical uh view of what's going on, and I don't subscribe to an accelerationist perspective, but I understand where people are coming from because I think people kind of need to be shaken up uh there's just enough comfort enough comfort oh can I ask you
1: because this is something sure. similar to what Zizek said. And I've said yeah. stuff like this in the past, too. So, you know, guilty. I've said you stuff what? like this as well Sorry. in the past, so I'm guilty of this as well. But you said, yeah. you know, I don't identify as an accelerationist or I don't subscribe to an accelerationist view, but I think people need to be shaken up. I understand why we're all using that preface, but also it doesn't mean anything if we all agree that people need to be shaken up. So, what does it mean like are we all just trying yeah, to avoid yeah. getting labeled in a way that gets us no? Curious? I mean are we all just accelerationists, but we're all afraid to just say it out loud?
14: No, I mean, I think that to me like it it feels like that's kind of uh, the only option that's that's left but but it's not really the only option i I remember when I watched some of Bernie's um speeches uh, during twenty sixteen and twenty twenty and he got into uh you know wealth distribution and i was yelling at the tv i'm like just educate them like he, i wish he had taken a more um kind of professorial uh approach where he was like in in a soundbite like teach people that the wealth that, that's created in companies and billionaires uh, portfolios like that that is being siphoned from the people at the bottom like so it's not about income redistribution it's about actually getting their their money back yeah and you want to do so a like,
1: marxism like i i i yeah, agree that when you explain it
14: we need to teach people <laughs>
1: right and i think i think that's why all of the right fully understands why it's very important to vilify marxism and anything marxism adjacent whether it's critical legal studies or whatever because if you don't say the word Marx and just simply explain labor capitalist theory or whatever you call it, you guys know I'm not book-learned, then it makes perfect sense to everybody and everyone gets hopping mad and and becomes a socialist. So like, I'm totally with you. And I think the Gravel gang doing those info videos although I haven't seen one in a while, but that kind of vibe is incredibly important. And I'd like to get back to doing some episodes that are more broad theory episodes like the one we did The first interview we did with Richard Wolf, which to date is one of my all-time favorites because some professors come on the show and they seem to think that no one wants to hear them talk about their professorial lessons. But I'm like, no, no, you are literally a professor and I'm bringing you here to tell me what's on all (laughs) of the Leather Brown books that you read. Like, I don't need you to just riff on current events. Like, go... Tell me about it in enough detail that I understand. I'm just gloss over all of these topics because you think nobody wants to hear you talk because then I truly get nothing out of it, right? So I, what I love about Richard Wolf is that he's like, he gives you the lesson. Yes. He, he, he takes out his notes and he gives you the lesson like you're in his classroom. So I think you're right that people are open to this and they want to get on board. And it's, you know, all of that, what they want to call it theory or just like explaining how the world is, it, it's, a, it's completely, it's incredibly effective.
14: Yeah, to have somebody who has such a long view, like, like that spans sometimes centuries, like just to to explain to break down how we got where we are. Um, but this
1: acceleration, you know,
14: from economics.
1: But this accelerates. What's that? This this accelerationism question. It's the difference. I understand that some people are like, I don't want to be called an accelerationist because I'm not going to do the thing, nor do I endorse doing the thing that actually makes the world worse, right? And I get that. I I wouldn't endorse that either. But people who also just acknowledge that the world is going to have to get worse, or it's likely that it will have to get worse before it gets better. If you say that, maybe you're not an accelerationist. But by saying that and believing that, in not doing the thing that, if not, makes the world worse, heightens the contra- contradictions, as you said, so that people understand that we live in a plutocracy, that people understand how bad things are, people understand how corrupt things are. Not doing that is, and while also believing that things that has to happen as a condition for things to get better, is a is a kind of like incrementalism. It's a kind of conservatism in and of itself, isn't it?
14: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. No, I mean like. To me, it's just more of a and I hate this phrase because of Sam Harris, a thought experiment of of thinking about like a hypothetical situation where things might shift. But, yeah, there's I mean, the way that I see an accelerationist world is, is there's a lot of chaos. And so you don't know what's going to come out of that chaos. Um, yeah. Like, things could be so messed up uh, that. You have a completely different outcome. So, yeah, it's I'm not I don't subscribe to it, but it's just something that I kind of entertain.
1: I Um, mean, it could be, you know, the worst that it has to get worse might be like we're fully living in Terminator and we all are wishing that we had just prayed for a few years of neoliberal bliss, late stage capitalist bliss. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I hear you. Thank you for that, Omar. And thank you for entertaining that little thought experiment.
14: Yeah. Know? Yeah. I I mean, one one last thing
1: mm-hmm.
14: <laughs> is that, um, yeah, the, the reason why I got frustrated with Bernie is because you have very little, you have very few opportunities to reach that many people.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
14: and I feel like he missed a bunch of opportunities to educate people and, and to really get them on board uh, with the message. And so like, I don't think that, you know, electoralism is going to save us, but I think those, like, the, that stage that you get um, really can have an impact on people when you when you give them, like, this punchy kind of narrative. Like, we need to correct the narrative um, with, yeah. with, like, what's actually happened. So, yeah, anyway, that was my last point, but
1: No, I 100%, <laughs> I 100% agree, and thank you for that, Omar. All right, Amir, you were going to be... The last collar because it's already ten, and Sal, even though I am often feeling very generous, I gotta cut it off at a mirror
2: do you, do you want me to cut it off now since it's it's no
1: come on friend Look, let's hear okay. it let's hear it well what you first of
2: here. all about Bernie that's just as somebody that is old enough uh, to and grew up in Europe and has seen America in the nineties um what we have now, even this conversation wouldn't have happened without Bernie. So, mm. you know, we have Elizabeth Warren, she professed, it's easy to find reasons to say why, why somebody could have done more. And, but it's absolutely wrong. We wouldn't have had people want to listen to Richard Wolf. We wouldn't have you know,
0: like,
2: mm. All those people that are now talking in America would have never dreamed in the nineties to have those conversations in America. And, I have to, you know, like the the one big difference is Bernie. So I, mm-hmm. I think that, that we should give him the respect, uh, and, you know, like and the thank you that he deserves. And if there's things to improve, that's what you're here for. And that's my point. I mean, for your conversation about, um, you know, during the weekend, uh, you know, I, it's easy to get mad because, you know, me too, like, <laughs> you know, my instinct was like... You know, we did everything, <laughs> you know, like what What else? But I kind of thought about it and here's my best, uh, you know, like uh, analysis to, for what it's worth. You know, that um, in 2016, <clears throat> you know, we didn't um, vote for Hillary. She never mm-hmm. got in. So, you know, yeah, we got, I don't know, you can, you know, we can say, hey, she was a shitty candidate and we voted for her and she still lost but for the democrats and most of the you know the blue maga uh, that's not the case like we you know like the the anger that was shown in the convention was translated in a loss and so i think you saw it on bernie's you know immediate fold and you know not wanting to be uh blamed for it again and mm-hmm. realizing yeah you, <laughs> you know when the forces don't want you to be the nominee you won't and so uh, you know, you can tear it apart or not, and you know, and still, you, I think everybody were uh, had enough with Trump, so you know, I don't. So I, I think that's in in a, in a some way, um, the point that I can take from what he said is like we did this. So if you remember when you were the, the um, you know, forced yes, the vote.
0: Secretary. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: No, no, the forced the vote when you were. I was with you back then too. Like you know, to you know, to, to do something uh, powerful. And yet, you know, they called it a, what do they call it? A, a, a strategy disagreement.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, strategic well, disagreement. They said yeah, it was just performative. Well,
2: well, mm-hmm. Okay, so they, I mean, I say, right now, that's our chance. And, you know, like, say, hey, we went with your way, twice. You know, shut the fuck up and let us drive, you know? <laughs> they, you know, and, and, and you're perfect to do that. Like, really, like, I mean, you're the comms for Bernie. You know, like there is no better person, uh, you know, with that anger of, or that attitude and that point of view and your ability to, you know, like the previous speaker said, or, you know, like organize our thoughts, uh, you know, which I can't do obviously clearly so well. So, you know, I think you should, you should take that, uh, you know, they could, we can have a little, our side of this party of our, the movement you know, show some force and maybe, I think there are plenty of us. I think that all of us, uh, not all of us, but many of us, you know, like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to say it better, but you know, like we went with Biden, I didn't vote for him, but you know, like the, he did get elected. And so mm-hmm. we can, you know, and more, that way, and more you know?
1: people and more Bernie people voted for Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton people in 2008 voted for Obama. Like it was never our fault but to the extent that they're still going to blame oh, us. Oh, I know, I know that,
2: I know that. No, no, but, but nonetheless, I'm not agreeing
1: it, with you. And so the, your argument yeah. is that, the extent that, they're still, that to the extent that they're still going to blame us and we always do the right thing, it's time to thread to do something different and to be and able to, to win. It right. co-
2: collapsed its own way, you know, like we gave him all the trust and you, you ruined it. They've got nothing to do with progressive. If anything, Pamela Jairpal ha- helped you, you know, delayed you a little bit, but <laughs> eventually you're the force of destroying yourself and the whole neoliberal argument. Has overtaken your ability to, you know, to to take this energy and do something with it. I mean, young people. I don't know if I don't know if it's accurate or not, but they 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 were the strongest supporter I heard uh, in some poll or whatever initially, and then now they're the ones that have dropped in the fastest. You know, like I don't know, people under thirty, I think.
0: Mm. So
2: you know, that's uh, what can you do? You killed it, not us. So how right. do we how do we leverage this and and, and take it to where? The force the vote type of uh, attitude takes over the you know yeah. essentially the progressive into maybe you know maybe an attempt to take the the DNC. But, well, you're you know,
1: hearing like, that a little bit now. If I if we end on a note of optimism, I would say that there are lots of people, including progressives in the House, who are now saying that at the end of the day they shouldn't let this bill die. That they that there should be a floor vote on it. And if Mansion and them want to vote it down, they can vote it down. But let there be a vote on the record. And it seems like somewhere, somebody somewhere is acknowledging the value of that kind of a stunt. Some people have argued that they should have loaded up these bills with tons of great stuff for the state of West Virginia and Arizona. So that mm-hmm. when and if they voted down, that you can get the headline that you want. Jo- Joe Manchin votes down, you know, a uh, billion dollars in aid for... A, uh, opioid relief in West Virginia. You know, Kirsten Cinema Vote Staff, we know whatever people care about in Arizona. I don't know. I'm not. You know, but and so that you can get your headline. And so maybe that will still happen. You know, I don't know if you saw. Uh, Pramila Jayapal was on, um, Mehdi Hassan show. Mehdi, like, Mehdi, say what you want you about know. Mehdi, but he's the only one on cable news that asks even halfway of a tough question sometimes. And I saw the boys over at um. The vanguard talking about uh, mm. yes down yes yes I, I,
2: I like those two. yeah and they like and they two.
1: were doing like they're right like Medei did ask her good questions and she sounded out of touch but she seems to still think this bill is gonna pass by December so let's see if at very least there's a vote so on the what
2: it. bill is gonna pass I, like why not make the bill the three and a half exactly and you know exactly
1: they should pump I mean, it back up and then vote yes exactly so we'll see we'll see what happens okay. we're we're all monitoring the situation I feel like I'm a an ER nurse. <laughs> We're monitoring the situation well, and see how we 're going to see how fast this bad boy dies <laughs> I, I,
2: I, I don't, that's the, the the one truth is that Manchin said it to Bernie, and that's that 's where my kind of heart broke for Bernie a little bit because he said i 'm okay with zero are you and that 's the reality at the end of the yep. day he 's okay with zero are you and bernie is is mean, one against five hundred and thirty four people it 's just so hard just to watch it every single time like no, you know, like so yeah. I don't. But well, anyway. we're not gonna
1: have to watch it for the rest of our lives because we're all putting our collective heads together. But, you know, all, the to he well. out, so.
0: all
2: the things that he did well, all the things he did well are a lot attributed to you. You know, like I mean, you were the comms person. So. Well,
1: well, I also let's let's talk about that. I was the national press secretary. I wasn't head of the comms department, and I, I would love to sit here and say I had all this control and authority, but I had none. I was in control of myself and my Twitter feed, and that only sometimes. Mike the Mike you're you're, 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 you know, head of the comms department, and I had, you know, I like Mike, but we had our, I had my own thoughts and feelings about what priorities should have been prioritized and the comms department. But that's a
2: policy. That's policy. That's not communicating, communicating it. No, you, know, like, I, you, no, you knew how to communicate Bernie's position, right?
1: But I'm saying I had no influence over how any of the campaign presented itself, except for me personally, myself. And I was very much limited to going oh, on TV. I, I, didn't, I didn't get to control anything, messages coming out of the campaign. Was it
2: Sirota?
1: No, Sirota, I mean, he'll talk about himself. I'm not trying to tell his business, but yeah, he but felt
2: he, him he felt,
1: yeah, me, Sirota, s there were <laughs> okay. lots of us in the campaign that agreed about certain messaging changes, and Sirota was a speechwriter, but, you know, Bernie likes to give a certain kind of speech, and I think a lot of us felt like we had less power in our roles than we had thought we were going to have. And the comms department, in Mike's defense, mm-hmm dealt mostly with defensive stuff. They were fielding incoming and there was very little attention as far as I saw given to affirmatively what the campaign wanted to say. And my feeling with comms is that an offense is more effective than a defense and you have the power to set your own message or Mm -hmm. someone will set it for you. And so I complained a lot and I said it on the show that there wasn't enough outreach to older voters. There was a lot of bragging about how many young voters like us, despite the fact that young people don't vote as often. And very little attention paid to getting older voters who Bernie's plans, frankly, should appeal to the most, given the Medicare expansion and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, on and on and on down the aisle. And some of it wasn't the Commerce Department's fault. Some of it was that, you know, Bernie's a Virgo and, you know, he likes things a certain kind of way and it is what it is. And you have to work with the principal.
2: the generation of, uh, yeah, he's a generation of like being, you know being i don't know maybe kinder i don't something about him and the west colonel west and i don't know well, there's not, something that is loving so everybody there's, and there's some that's empathy. not even what i mean
1: actually but regardless okay. the point is that i didn't have yes. any real authority there at all and i was you know okay. it doesn't make me happy to say i had no power like it doesn't make me look good <laughs> but i'm, I'm also I not know taking your
2: time specific. i have to squeeze one last because it's related to what you said like i mean mm mm-hmm. uh, adolf reed you know like he, he said like recently like i think it was on kyle and uh, crystal like that there's too much mobilizing and not enough organizing and he defines it as mobilizing as like getting your people out but organizing is talking to the other side do you think there's value if like progressive got the red mug out and the stuff that is happening obviously the politicians are here and there the flur of politician that, that says something right is because there's a public that is suffering just as as much as we do, you know? And so if Democrats knew that, you know, or saw any movement that we can, okay, we'll take people from the other side on the things we agree on. We're not going to, you know, not going to change our values, but there's healthcare, you know, everybody wants it. Maybe we need some, you know, like actually being active at forming those ties. I don't know. That's uh, my...
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I I feel very strongly that there are a lot of people who are not being touched at all by the Democratic Party message, and I hope that people get uh, to that. But thank you for that, Amir. you. You're not going to be a thing, Um, but please do call in next time and get in the queue early, and I'd be happy to hear from you. This was supposed to be a short call because we had done an extra call on Sunday, and I thought for sure we would have exhausted all the topics, but I really appreciate all of your enthusiasm. And willingness to hang out with me on this Tuesday night before a holiday and um, please do consider um, listening to bad faith even if you can't afford to subscribe or aren't interested at this time. it really helps us out a lot to go over to the YouTube and sharing our videos. We try to put as much stuff out for free even from the paywall episodes as possible because I'm genuinely proud of what we're doing and I want you to see it and Ben works so hard on his videos and making them look pretty and stuff. So go ahead and like our videos, share them on social media, subscribe to the channel. I would love to have a hundred thousand subscribers for Christmas. I know it's not going to happen, but maybe by next Christmas. (laughs) Um, Thank you all. Uh, Clip parts of this episode that you liked, push them to social media. I will share them if you clip them using the clipping tool. Thank you Spencer. You're an all-star for doing so many clips. And as always stay safe and keep the faith.
0: Thank you.